Hello, everybody. Welcome to the third Wednesday night online service. And, you know, I'm starting to get used to it. I, I'm not getting used to you not being here uh, because, listen, far superior to see people sitting in the seats. But I'm sort of getting used to the camera and talking to the camera, camera and just picturing your faces on the other side of it. And uh, so thank God that we had these resources when all of this went down. I want to also let you know that we are not allowing coronavirus to stop our ministry. As you can see, we're coming to you with the services, but there's more. Monday night, I was listening as Life Talk, our uh, radio program that has been on for years on many, many different stations, but I listened to it Monday evening for the first time, launched nationwide in every time zone in drive time. And it was, it was really cool. I, I tuned in uh, to a station in Kansas, and I listened to it via a station in Kansas. And there was Life Talk. And uh, it was just such a blessing to see the Word of God going out to a hurting nation, uh, again, in every time zone, coast to coast, uh, with the Word of God. And I want to thank you for your very faithful um, financial support during this very trying time. Uh, you know, God has been providing, and yet I know that many of you are hurting, and many of you need provision yourselves, and we pray for you, I want you to know this, every day. We lift you up, and we pray that God will be Jehovah Jireh for you, and that you will see his provision miraculously coming from places maybe you didn't even expect, and we're just, we're praying for that, and we will get through this. We will come out on the other side of this valley, I believe, stronger, more purified, uh, better, more capable at many things like social media. And I believe that our God, who is never checkmated by the devil, is going to work this together for our good. So know that you're in our prayers, you're in our thoughts, we love you, and we're lifting you up every single day. And I believe God hears that prayer. Well, we're continuing the book of Hebrews, and tonight we're going to be looking at Hebrews chapter 9, and boy, it is powerful. It's talking about the greatness of Jesus' sacrifice. You know, if there's ever a time we need to hear the Word of God, it's now. The Word of God builds our faith. The Word of God fills and feeds our spirit, and if ever there was a season in your life and mine, where we need to be getting the word of God, that manna from heaven every single day, it is now. And so I'm, I'm so thrilled to be able to bring to you our continuing series in the book of Hebrews. And keep in mind, the book of Hebrews was written to Jewish people who had grown up under Moses and the Mosaic system, the tabernacle, the temple, the rituals, the sacrifices. Uh, this was their DNA. And now Jesus has come. And now the writer of Hebrews is writing this letter. Primarily, his target audience is the Jewish people who had indeed come up under Moses. And he's telling them in so many different ways how much better the new covenant under Jesus Christ is. He's telling them we have a better blood, a better covenant, a better mediator, better this, better that better the other. It's just better. Matter of fact, if you'll remember, better is the key word that sums up the book of Hebrews. So we're going to look today, or rather tonight, at the greatness 
of Jesus' sacrifice. Now, as we closed out chapter 8 last time, we saw that Jesus' sacrifice and his subsequent new covenant written in his own blood made the old covenant under Moses with all the sacrifices and rituals obsolete. Verse 13 in chapter 8 says, in that he says a new covenant. He has made the first covenant, the old covenant, the old rituals, the Mosaic system obsolete. Now what is becoming obsolete and growing old is ready to vanish away. Now for the Jewish people of the first century, this was a shocking thing to hear. And it was very offensive to many of them, but it was true. The old system had been made obsolete by the blood of Jesus shed on Calvary's cross. And so in chapter 9, the writer begins, and by the way, I hope you have your Bible with you. Grab that Bible there in your living room and uh, your office, wherever you happen to be. Uh, Grab your Bible and turn with me to Hebrews 9. I really want you to follow along, and let's just do a good old-fashioned Bible study. Now, in chapter 9, the writer begins by describing the Old Testament tabernacle Moses built in the wilderness under God's direction. So the next verses we're going to read, he's describing uh, the layout of this tabernacle that they built in the wilderness. He says in verse 1, chapter 9, book of Hebrews, now in that first agreement, but a better word here is covenant, in that first covenant between God and his people, there were rules for worship And there was a sacred tent. That's what the tabernacle was. It was a great big tent down here on earth. Inside this place of worship, the tabernacle, the great big tent, there were two rooms. The first one contained the golden candlestick and a table with special loaves of holy bread upon it. And this part was called the holy place. We've heard about this, the holy place, and then we're going to read a minute in just a moment about the holy of holies. But this is the holy place. Verse 3, then there was a curtain, and this curtain separated the holy place from the holy of holies. And in that room, verse 4, there were a golden incense altar and the golden chest called the Ark of the Covenant completely covered on all sides with pure gold. What a beautiful thing. Covered on all sides with pure gold. And inside this ark were some key things. The tablets of stone with the Ten Commandments written on them were placed in this ark with a golden jar with some manna in it. So we have first the word of God represented in the ark. And then we have God's provision manifested and kept in the ark. There was manna in a golden jar. And then there was Aaron's wooden cane that budded. And above the golden chest were statues of angels called the cherubim and the guardians of God's glory. And with their wings stretched out over the ark's golden cover, picture this beautiful thing, on top of the ark is these golden cherubims and their wings are outstretched. And this was called the mercy seat. And the Shekinah glory of God dwelt in between these cherubim. Now, the writer says, of these things we cannot now speak in detail. I'm not, he said, I'm not going to go into it in any more detail. I, I, I've told you all I need to tell you to set the stage for what I want to say. Verse 6. Now, when these things had been thus prepared, the priests 
always went into the first part, not the second part, but the first part of the tabernacle performing the services. Now notice the priests here is plural. Just the common priests every day went into this outer place, this holy place, but not into the holy of holies. And the Bible says they always went. And what that means is every day the priests, plural, went into the first tabernacle, the holy place, to do the service of God. Okay? Now, the service of God that they performed included burning the incense at the morning and evening sacrifice. They kept the incense burning, dressing the lamps, and supplying the lamps with oil. They were tasked to never let the fire go out, never let the flame go out. So it was their job every day to be sure there was enough oil in those lamps. And then they changed the showbread every Sabbath morning and so on and so forth. Now, Next, he discusses the most sacred part of the tabernacle. And here is where it's really getting to where the writer is taking us in this chapter. The Holy of Holies and the job of the high priest only. He says in verse 7, But into the second part, the high priest went alone once a year, not without blood, which he offered for himself and for the people's sins committed in ignorance. Now, notice what the requirement was for the high priest who went in only one time a year. So think about that. The holy place, the holy of holies, the most holy place where the glory of God dwelt, had one visit a year. That's it. And when this high priest went in, he was told, don't ever go in without blood. The high priest could not enter the place of God's presence without the shed blood of an animal. He was instructed to bring with him blood to sprinkle on top of that incredible mercy seat. And he brought the blood of a bull and he brought the blood of a goat, which he brought at two different times. Now, the first time he sprinkled the blood of the bull on the mercy seat for himself and for his family. For every priest called by God from among men was still a sinner himself. Now, there, again, the writer's going somewhere with this. He's showing us how the old system worked, and he's about to, to compare this priesthood with our great high priest, Jesus Christ, and how superior he is to the old priesthood and how superior his blood is to the blood of bulls and goats. And so first, the priest, the high priest went in to the Holy of Holies and had to, had to sprinkle blood on this mercy seat for himself. So even the high priests were sinners. And then a second time, he brought the blood of a goat for the sins or the errors of the people. Now, the word translated into errors here means ignorance or involuntary error. And also included error or fault in general. Now, what he's saying here is that the shed blood covered the sins of the people they didn't even know they had committed. You know, one time David prayed. He said, Lord, keep me back from presumptuous sin. There are times uh, that some, we, we mess up and we don't even know we messed up. Thank God the blood of Jesus covers that. But this was to take care of the sins that the people committed that they didn't even know they had committed. And so on the Day of Atonement, the high priest would go in 
and he would sprinkle the blood on the, on the mercy seat to cover the sins they were not even aware they had committed and also the ones they were aware they had committed. And this had to happen once every year. And this mosaic system lasted 1,200 years. Think about how long that is. This system where a high priest walked into the Holy of Holies and sprinkled blood on the mercy seat was done 1,200 times, times 52. A lot of times. This ritual was done once a year on the Day of Atonement. The regular repetition of these sacrifices was a constant reminder of sin so that the priests could not lose sight of the fact that they also were the violators of the law of God. So every year he went in for 1,200 years. Next, the writer of Hebrews tells us what God was saying through all of this. In verse 8, he says, the Holy Spirit was indicating something that the way into the holiest of all was not yet made manifest while the first tabernacle was still standing. It was symbolic. This whole thing was symbolic for the present time in which both gifts and sacrifices are offered, which cannot make him who performed the service perfect in regard to the conscience. Concern only with foods and drinks and various washings and fleshly ordinances imposed until the time of reformation. Now, catch that. When the high priest went in and, and did this and on the Day of Atonement and sprinkled the blood, there's one crucial thing it could not do until Jesus came and shed his own blood. It could not get rid of their guilty conscience. That would take the blood of the Lamb. Entrance into the holiest of all symbolized direct access to God. And the way into it had not been made evident yet because Jesus had not yet come. You know, when Jesus said, I am the way, the truth, and the life, no man can come to the Father except through me. Well, the way into what? Well, he is the way into the presence of God, into heaven. He's the way. And so this sacrifice, all that was going on every year, the Day of Atonement, when the high priest would go in and sprinkle the blood on the mercy seat, this all was pointing down the tunnel of time to the day that Jesus Christ would shed his own blood. It was a type. It was a shadow. It was sort of a signpost pointing to what Jesus Christ would ultimately do. He, Jesus is the new and the living way. Now, ultimately, the Holy of Holies was intended to symbolize, I believe, heaven. And how, because of sin, it was inaccessible to people. Look, nobody could go in there. What was God saying when he said, nobody can go into the Holy of Holies? The plural priests, the the priests plural, can go into the holy place. But the people nor the regular priests can go into the Holy of Holies. It was totally sacred and special and untouchable. What was God saying? God was saying the Holy of Holies represented heaven. And he was telling the entire world, starting with the Jewish people, you cannot come into my presence without the shedding of blood. But during the Old Covenant, 
only the high priest can come in and he alone can sprinkle blood on the mercy seat that covers the sins of the people. But the people can't go in. What was God saying? He was saying, the day for you to be able to come into the Holy of Holies, to enter into my presence, and ultimately to enter into heaven, is awaiting the arrival of my son and his shed blood. And this is why we're told that the curtain in the temple, when Jesus died, when he, when he gave up the ghost and died, saying it is finished, the gospels record that the, the veil that separated the holy place from the holy of holies was ripped loudly by the powerful hand of God. This thing was about six inches thick, but it was ripped from top to bottom. And what was God saying? Now that the blood of Jesus has been shed, the, the lamb of God, the ultimate lamb of God, now by that blood, not just a high priest once a year, but anyone who calls on him and puts their faith in him can enter into the holy place, into my presence, and ultimately into heaven because now he is the way, he is the truth, and he is the life, and his shed blood has made a way for you to go where nobody could go before. That is incredible good news. And so now let's look at verse 11. He, Jesus, came as high priest of this better system that we now have. He went into that greater, now listen carefully to this, he went into that greater perfect tabernacle where? In heaven. Not made by men. This tabernacle, the old tabernacle, was put together by Moses under the instruction of God. Then the temple was built by Solomon under the instruction of God. But there is a tabernacle in heaven that man has had nothing to do with. It was built by God. And look what it says Jesus did. Verse 12. And once for all, Jesus took blood into that inner room, the Holy of Holies, and sprinkled it on the mercy seat. But it was not the blood of goats and calves No, he took his own blood and with it, he by himself made sure of our eternal salvation. What what an incredible, beautiful picture. When Jesus died, he said, it is finished. The veil was rent in half. Now we had access into the Holy of Holies and into heaven itself by his shed blood. Then he was buried in a borrowed tomb. And then on the third day, he got up from the dead. And after appearing to his disciples and to many people over a period of many, many days, Jesus lifted up his hands and his arms and ascended back into heaven in full view of the disciples. And what did he do when he got into heaven? He went into heaven. He marched into that heavenly tabernacle made by the hands of God. And he took his own shed blood to the mercy seat that is in heaven. And he sprinkled that shed blood on that mercy seat. What a picture. Never, never, never will there ever have to be the shed blood of another animal, of another goat, another lamb, another oxen, because Jesus marched his own blood into the tabernacle in heaven and sprinkled it on the mercy seat in heaven. And that's why the Bible says, once for all, I love those words, once for all, Jesus 
made the ultimate sacrifice that will never, ever have to be made again. Next, the writer shows how Jesus' blood is far better and accomplishes far more than that of bulls and goats. Look at verse 13. And if under the old system, the blood of bulls and goats and the ashes of young cows could cleanse men's bodies from sin, just think how much more surely the blood of Christ will transform our lives and hearts. Notice that word transform. Because the new covenant doesn't just cover you to a point. The new covenant assures not just that your sins are going to be forgiven, but that you're going to receive, because of his shed blood, a brand new nature, a transformed nature, a transformed heart. You're going to be a brand new person. His sacrifice frees us from the worry of having to obey the old rules and makes us want to serve the living God. Now listen to this next part. I saw this today and it spoke to me. I've never noticed it before. The writer says, for by the help of the eternal Holy Spirit, Christ willingly gave himself to God to die for our sins. He being perfect without a single sin or a single fault. Here's what I saw. By the help of the eternal Holy Spirit. Do you see how the Holy Spirit, God the Father, God the Son, and God the Holy Spirit were all active in the death of Christ on the cross for us. How did Jesus steal himself to go through with the torture, the mockery, the ridicule, the rejection, the pain, the bleeding, the the momentary separation from God's presence as he took on my sins and yours onto himself? How did he do it? Right here we're told, with the help of the eternal Holy Spirit who strengthened him to go through with it to the end. That blessed me because, you know, if if the Holy Spirit can strengthen Jesus to go all the way to the cross, what can he not strengthen you and I to do that is part of the will of God? Amen? Thank God for the Holy Spirit. Thank God that he gave his Holy Spirit on the day of Pentecost. And when you and I are faced with a great trial, the same Holy Spirit that strengthened Jesus to go all the way to the cross, can strengthen you and I to do the will of God. It says in verse 15, Hebrews chapter 9, Christ came with this new agreement, and again, a better word is covenant. He came with this new covenant so that all who are invited may come and have forever all the wonders God has promised them. For Christ died to rescue them from the penalty of the sins they had committed while still under that old system. He's talking to the Jewish people of his day now, but by default, all of us. That when Jesus died and spilled his blood, it covered all of our sins, particularly and only when you place your faith in him. Notice in the first verse how the writer says the blood of the bulls and goats could cleanse the flesh. Now, I thought that was kind of weird. I looked at that and went, now, what does that mean? Well, it's talking about when somebody had been defiled by touching a dead body, which was forbidden. The blood of bulls and goats could cleanse their bodies from that defiling sin. But that blood fell short in being able to cleanse the conscience from the guilt of sin. You see, nothing can take away the guilt of sin, but the better blood, the blood of Jesus, 
The blood of Christ, says the writer, can alone cleanse our conscience from guilt. Let me read it again. Christ died to rescue them from the penalty of the sins they had committed while still under that old system. See, the blood of Christ went further than the blood of bulls and goats, which could not cleanse your conscience. You know what a joy it is to wake up in the morning and know that your sins are washed away. Know that the things you did and thought and said, the attitudes that you carried that were wrong, the sinful actions we've all been involved in, lying, stealing, sexual sins, you name it, the sins of mankind, so common to us all, to wake up and know that it's washed away and nothing else can do that. In the old covenant, it couldn't, the, the blood of bulls and goats couldn't wash it away. But in the new covenant, the blood of Jesus goes deeper and it's, it's more efficacious. It washes away and removes our sins and the guilt of our sins. You know, nothing can bear down on you like guilt. People try to drink their guilt away, drug their guilt away, uh, reason their guilt away, deny their guilt away. But you know, nothing will keep you awake at night and nothing will torture you during the day more than the guilt of sin. Uh, Because of the guilt of sin, I'm convinced is why so many people every day have got to go to the alcohol, got to turn to the drugs, got to do whatever it is they, they can find to numb their conscience that is crying out because of guilt. But the blood of Jesus washes not just the sin, but the guilt away. God said, I'm going to remove your guilt as far as the east is from the west. I'm going to throw it into the deepest part of the ocean. As a matter of fact, because of the blood of Jesus, God says, I'm not even going to remember your sin anymore. God doesn't remember it. Oh, Satan remembers it, and Satan wants to remind us of it. But God says, why don't you do what I've done and forget about it because I've washed it away. I've washed your sin away, and I've removed the guilt. What a glorious thing the blood of Jesus has done for all of us. Thank God for the removal of that tormenting, haunting stalking guilt. Now, the Bible goes on to say, he's going to talk now about a will. We all know what a will is. Most of us, or at least a lot of us, have already made a will for when we die. But he's he's switching gears here. Now he's going to draw a comparison. He's going to give us an illustration about a will. Starting at verse 16, he says, Now when someone leaves a will, it is necessary to prove that the person who made the will is dead. The will goes into effect only after the person's death. Now, we all understand that. You can't access a will until the person that made the will has passed away. And then the will is quickened or the will is activated. While the person who made it is still alive, the will can't be put into effect. That is why, he says, even the first covenant, the old covenant under Moses, was put into effect with the blood of an animal. In other words, something had to die to activate the covenant. In other words, God was showing way back with the introduction of the law that a covenant had to be ratified by shed blood, by the sacrificial death of an animal. Something had to die for the covenant to be activated. 
He was teaching his people that without the shedding of blood, there could be no legitimate covenant. Everything God did in the Old Testament was preparing us for Christ in the new covenant. So this, of course, was to prepare them for the ultimate sacrifice that Jesus made by shedding his own blood. And the minute Jesus said, it is finished and died, the new covenant was activated. Salvation by grace through faith. That was the new covenant. No longer I've got to jump through all these Ten Commandment hoops and I've got to perfectly fulfill the law and it's a meritorious system based on how I perform. That was gone. No, the minute Jesus said it is finished and he gave up the ghost and died, the moment that happened, the new covenant was activated. Now, when you place your faith in him, it is by the terms of the new covenant. And what are the terms of the new covenant? We are saved by grace through faith, period. We don't have to jump through any hoops. He jumped through the hoops for us. Thank God for the new covenant, the new will, as it were, that we all live in now. Now look at the next verses, started with with verse 19. For after Moses had read each of God's commandments to all the people, he took the blood of calves and goats along with water and sprinkled both the book of God's law and all the people using hyssop branches and scarlet wool. That's the ritual that he went through. Then Moses said, this blood confirms the covenant God has made with you, the old covenant. This confirms it. Something has died, and now the old covenant is activated. And in the same way, he sprinkled blood on the tabernacle, on everything used for worship. In fact, according to the law of Moses, nearly everything was purified by blood. Now listen to the next few words. For without the shedding of blood, there is no forgiveness. That was the message God began. You know what? Past Moses, past Abraham, all the way back to the Garden of Eden. Watch with me. When Adam and Eve sinned and God went looking for them in the garden. Of course, he knew where they were. He, when he said, where art thou? He knew exactly where they were. He wanted them to come clean. But when he found them, what did God do? He gave them animal skins to cover themselves. What was the message right there? Something died to cover your sin. All the way back in the Garden of Eden, something had to die to cover your sin. When Abel and Cain came to make their sacrifices to God. And Cain brought an offering of the garden. He brought sort of a veggie offering. But Abel brought, uh, he brought a sacrifice from a slain animal. And the Bible says that God accepted Abel's sacrifice but rejected Cain's. And Cain became very angry and downcast. But he shouldn't have been. Because the first couple had already taught their sons What God had taught them without the shedding of blood, there's no remission of sins. So when Abel brought a blood offering, an animal sacrifice, it showed that he was moving by faith in what God had already taught them. Without the shedding of blood, there's no sacrifice for sins, no remission. But Cain had rejected God's way and therefore God rejected him. And that's why our generation today 
is mistaken so often because we say, I'm going to come to God my way. We offer God essentially a veggie offering, which, you know, Cain's veggie offering symbolized my way. I'm coming to God my way. I'm going to do it my way. He's going to have to accept me on my terms, but God never accepts us on our terms. He only accepts us on his terms. And so God rejected Cain, but received Abel. And he was telling us way back then, there is no remission of sins without the shedding of blood. You've got to come my way. And now that Jesus has come and shed his blood on the cross and made the old covenant way obsolete, what is God saying to us now, to our whole generation, to the entire world? You can't come to me by way of Muhammad or Buddha or hugging a tree or being a good person or never getting a traffic ticket. No, no, no. That, that, that's a veggie offering. That's what Cain did. No, you've got to come to me my way by the shed blood of my son. And if you go to the cross and say at the foot of the cross, Jesus, forgive me. He will forgive you and cleanse you and carry you through the veil into the holy of holies and ultimately into heaven because he alone is the way and the truth and the life. Verse 23, that's why the tabernacle and everything in it, which were only copies of things in heaven, had to be purified by the blood of animals. But the real things in heaven had to be purified with far better sacrifices than the blood of animals. Remember, the tabernacle was only a shadow, was only a type. It was only a copy of what really does exist in heaven. And the blood necessary to wash our sins away and to be sprinkled in heaven's tabernacle had to be superior to the blood of animals. And the blood of Jesus, the Lamb of God, was that superior blood. Verse 24, for Christ did not enter into a holy place made with human hands. No, he went into heaven, into the tabernacle in heaven. Because the earthly tabernacle was only a copy of the true tabernacle in heaven. He entered into heaven itself to appear now before God on our behalf. And he did not enter heaven to offer himself again and again. Here's the good news. He didn't have to do it over and over like the high priest did on earth once a year at the day of atonement. No, no. And he didn't have to bring the blood of an animal animal over and over again. If that had been necessary, Christ would have had to die again and again ever since the world began. But now, once for all time, he has appeared at the end of the age to remove sin by his own death as a sacrifice. Thank God. I personally thank God. There doesn't have to be any more sacrifice of animals, no more killing of animals, because Jesus Christ, the Lamb of God, died for us once for all. The last two verses read, verse 27, and just as each person is destined to die once, and after that comes judgment, so also Christ also, or, or so also Christ was offered once for all time as a sacrifice to take away the sins of many people. He will come again. You ought to say that in your living room, wherever you are right now. Just say it again. He will come again. 
Say it again. He will come again. Here's the promise of scripture found in the book of Hebrews as it is so many other places. He will come again. And, and what will happen when he comes again? Not to deal with our sins. If you're his, when he comes again, it's not going to be to make you pay for your sins because he already paid for them, but to bring salvation to all who are eagerly waiting for him. Now, I want to pay close attention to one verse as we close, because this really matters. He said, it is destined for us all to die only once, and then we face our maker. You know, the whole doctrine of reincarnation is a lie. The Bible says it's a lie. When we die, we do not come back as something else. We don't continually come back as Buddhism teaches. None of that. The Bible says it's given unto men to die one time, once. And when you die, it's eternally too late if you don't die right. You know, it's not how soon you die, when you die, it's how you die. It's who you know or don't know when you die. And he's saying here, you're either going to face Jesus who has washed your sins away and he's going to return to take you to heaven beyond the veil into the beautiful place called heaven or you're going to face God and answer for your sins. And if you face God to answer for your sins, there's no lawyer, there's no attorney to stand there with you because the attorney that is available for you and me right now is Jesus Christ. He is our attorney. And he's the only one that can go to God and say, they are cleansed in my blood. But without that, we have no attorney when we face God and we will answer for our sins. So I want to encourage all of you listening. If you do know Jesus, you need to thank God for the verse that says he will return again, not to deal with our sins. But if you don't know Jesus, pay close attention. You still have time. You can pray to receive him. In the middle of this plague moving across America, the issue is not, is it going to take my life? The issue is, what condition would I be in if it did? Would I know Jesus? Because every person on earth is going to live forever in one place or another. So I'm going to ask you, do you know Jesus? Do you know the Lord? Has he come into your heart? And there may be just one or two, maybe a handful watching right now who aren't sure. You can be sure. And at this time, with all that's going on in our society, I want to be sure to give you a chance to pray. Would you pray with me? Would you like to? You can be saved right now. You can be born again right now. He can come into your heart right now. He is the great high priest. His blood is the only blood that can wash your guilt away. So I'm going to ask you to bow right there in the living room. If you're watching by your iPhone, a podcast perhaps later, wherever you happen to be, you can pause and you can pray this prayer. So pray it with me. I'm going to bow and I'm going to lead you in this prayer. Say, Lord Jesus, I believe you died for me and you rose again from the dead so that I could be saved. Jesus, forgive me my sins. 
And come into my heart, Lord Jesus, as my Savior and Lord. I pray it right now in Jesus' name. Amen and amen. If you prayed that prayer, you can contact us. You can call us at 817-293-3111. We'd love to hear from you. That's 817-293-3111. Or you can go to our website at tpcfamily.org. Click on Watch Live and then scroll to the bottom of the page and you will see a button that says Salvation. Click on it. And a little form is going to come up for you to fill out and send it in because it, it lets us know who you are and who we can pray for. And we want to get some materials to you that'll help you in your Christian growth. Get your eyes on Jesus. If you prayed that prayer, you are now a child of God because of the beautiful, powerful, mighty blood of Jesus Christ, God's lamb. Thank you for watching. And to all of our church family know that we love you. And I so hope to see you in person very soon. And don't miss this Sunday. I'm going to be speaking on the subject, is the coronavirus part of Bible prophecy? If it is, what part of prophecy is it? Is this a sign of the end? Is, is this virus something that should be signaling to us that the end of time is just around the corner? I'm going to answer that question, and I'm going to talk to you about prophecy. And I believe it's going to be a comforting message. So don't miss it. Sunday, 9, 10, 30 or noon, do a watch party. Tell somebody to watch with you. Bring people in. They need to hear the encouraging word of God. God bless you. Amen.